My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. For many years, I've found myself wondering if there's anything that I can do to affect change and improve the lives of the homeless. In studio today, we have a man who did just that. Ron Tibbetts has spent over 17 years of his life ministering to the homeless in Boston. We'll talk to Ron about the transformation that led him to take on this ministry and how those experiences informed his life for years to come. All that more coming up next on Chapters. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and today in studio we have the Reverend Ron Tibbetts. And Ron is a deacon currently serving out of Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham. He has a fascinating story, and I'm glad you're here, Ron. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. Ron, can you explain to us what a deacon does? Deacon does. Yes, and what a deacon is. does. Yeah, and is. <laughs> we're, we're, not quite, we're not always sure what a deacon does. Yeah. But fundamentally, the, the ordination vows of a deacon in the Episcopal Church are to bring the church to the world and the world to the church. Our purpose is service and servant ministry to those who are living on the margins in a variety of situations in this world, but also to keep the church, the gathered community of the faithful, aware of their call to be present in that world. Okay, yeah. And and as a as a deacon in the Episcopal Church, you are responsible for the con- to the congregation or at least you've taken it upon yourself to be responsible for something called servant ministry. Would that be accurate? Yes, it is. Servant ministry is is a part of in the experience of ordination, all of those who are ordained or who are ordained bishops, priests, and deacons are called to serve not only the gathered community of the faithful, but for those who have yet to hear the gospel, mm-hmm. and to serve folks where, where they live, mm-hmm. not necessarily within the confines of community, sure. or faith and worship community. Mm-hmm. Well, in the spirit of full disclosure, I have known Ron for just over 27 years. And, uh, is that right? Uh, it is that. It's been that long. We started uh, worshiping together at Trinity Episcopal Church as congregants. Uh, we uh, studied together. We uh, shared uh, coffee together a lot. I've gotten to know his family. Uh, and in addition to that, Ron has led a fascinating life, um, uh, one of going from being a congregant and part of the faithful flock at Trinity Episcopal Church to serving in the diaconate. Uh, and um, so, Ron, do you remember the time when you started to think about becoming involved in an active ministry? I think the program that you and I shared in at Trinity had an awful lot to do with that thinking, and that was a program titled Education for Ministry. I remember it well, yep. It was a three-year commitment. Right. And across that three years, we explored a whole bunch of theological questions, social questions, spiritual questions, individual questions. And I think with each experience in each meeting, we, we all had our growing points, 
and the rough edges that we couldn't get past certain sort of concepts. And we did a lot of that theological reflection. Yes. Which was a blast oh, yeah. to do. Right. I remember and, this. You're bringing yeah. me back. Yeah. That was so much fun. Yeah. But my relationship, I think, with the, and I'll call, uh, I will say the divine. Yes. Yeah. Was something that I knew existed in me from the time I was a little boy. As a little boy beside my house in Norfolk, there was a wonderful little hill that I thought at the time was a mountain. And on the side of the mountain, there was this beautiful pine tree. And on good days in the summer, I would just go and lay under that tree, look up through the branches and try to see the sky. And I imagined it as heaven. The um, birth and death were, were issues for me for contemplation ever since the time I was a little guy. Remember when my first dog died, trying to understand what death meant. Yeah. When my grandmother died, right. what did death mean? How does that change my life? All of those things were, were there. In high school, I, I, I questioned the issues of our time, which were um, the Vietnam War, civil rights, um, abortion was among those issues. I did deep questions about those. And I wrote a lot. I did a lot of um, my own poetry and reflective stuff. And Yeah. You're at Trinity Episcopal Church. You've got two children. Um, later on, you, you begin worshiping there. Later on, you're involved with this education for ministry, which starts to spark some questioning in your mind and some thoughts about possibly pursuing maybe ordained ministry. That's correct. Yeah. Any yeah other? During that time when we were, we were doing EFM, I began to explore the ordained priesthood. And in conversations with my family, that would mean radical change, radical, radical change in our lives. Um, it's going back to university. It's spending three years in a in a degree program, and you know we have young kids, and we have financial needs and housing needs and all of that. And although my wife was hugely supportive, it didn't seem to make an awful lot of sense to me in the end. What opened up in our diocese was this vocational diaconate. It had been a it had been put to the, the side for a very long time because they just weren't sure what deacons could do in the Episcopal Diocese in Massachusetts. I heard about it. I began to understand that it was, it was a ministry where you kept your full-time employment, you devoted a certain number of hours a week to the church and the mission of the church, and you would serve for two to four years in various, in various parishes around the diocese bringing the message of what you experience serving in the world to the church. You don't get paid for it. It had, there's no contract. You are a missionary, in a sense, sent out by the bishops of your diocese. You're not employed by the parish. Um, and it just struck me, wow, I want to find out more about this. It's re really interesting. So you're taking <clears throat> on a vocation, mm -hmm. which is um, something that you're not going to be paid for, uh, at least by traditional remuneration, um, and <clears throat> you are going to continue to work. Mm -hmm. At that time, you were working at Raytheon? I was. Okay. I was in a technical writing, okay. in tec technical documentation. I assume <laughs> we're, we're talking about a lot of weekend work? <laughs> in the diaconate? Yes. Yeah, you yeah. were, um, where you were it's Raytheon was changing its policy, so you didn't need to wear white shirts and ties sure. or white collar work. Yeah, I was deciding that I'd get into weekend white collar work. There you go. And, <laughs> but you know, here, it's great. That you, and your family's response was, "If that's what you need to do, 
Yeah. And so uh, I kind of want to fast forward a little bit. You get uh, interested in a particular ministry in Boston. That's correct. And and um, and it specifically has to do with the homeless. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Jim, when I began, the, and I think you remember when um, I began that formation process, a part of my formation process within the diocese was to say goodbye to Trinity Church and to be assigned to another parish as a layperson working towards ordination. So part of that formation process required that you do two internships. One was to be a totally secular internship, uh-huh. to work uh, whatever you might be called to do, and there were a series of places that we were offered that we could work, hospital experiences, nursing home experiences, I, there, there were just many. And the other requirement was to do a secular inter- a non-secular or faith-based internship. My choice, and I, I'm not exactly sure why, my choice was to do my first internship with Common Cathedral and Ecclesia Ministry, which was sort of my faith-based experience. And that was to encounter the homeless. And can you can you describe to our listeners what common and, and common cathedral is, exists today? That is correct. And absolutely. so, can you describe to our it's, listeners what that is? Everyone's welcome there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Common cathedral actually is a lot more than than what you what you might see on their their Facebook page or on their website page. Started by a priest, the Reverend Debbie, Debbie Little. Mm-hmm who began recognizing the plight of the homeless and the absence of um, worship experiences for them. She began a program that gathered on, gathered on Boston Common on Sunday mornings and did sort of a loosely formed liturgy, a time yeah. of prayer and praise. Right. And, it, it, um, and it's grown from that. It's an international experience now. There are common cathedral-type worship experiences all over the world now that grow, have grown out of Debbie's I, work. I did not know that. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. Now, I've been to one, and, and along with the uh, the liturgy and, and the um, worship, uh, which I think when I went, it was a February day. It was about 14 degrees out, and there, there were no rain or snow days. Debbie's philosophy from the very beginning was that as long as there is one person without a roof over their head, we will be a church without a roof it's, over it's, it's our inc- head. It's truly incredible, and any parish mm-hmm. can sign up. Any parish from That's, any domina- yes. denomination. You sign up and, and sponsor the the um, lunch right. that is after the worship. You mm-hmm. can participate in the small prayer groups. There are things going on in the, during the week that, that there are just a, a multitude of volunteers it's an amazing thing. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I want to remind you that we're speaking with the Reverend Ron Tibbetts, who is a deacon at Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham. For 17 years, Ron ministered to the homeless. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find us on our podcast at chaptersradio.com. So you you have this exposure to Common Cathedral, and that starts to spark something inside of you. I, I have to tell you, Jim, each time I went and I did street ministry, and I would do street ministry after work during during the week at Raytheon. I'd walk the streets of Boston offering people socks, a bottle of water, a sandwich, whatever. And I would I did this with a, my internship director. Every time I went, you start to encounter the same people. And if you if there's an integrity to the encounter, a friendship starts to emerge. And after the third week, when people see you and they know you by name. And you are still struggling to remember their name. Yes, yeah. there's an intimacy that starts to develop, 
And just the blessing or for me the privilege in that was not that I was beginning to accept them into my world, but they were beginning to accept me into a world that was so different, radically different than anything I had ever known and beginning to be known as a friend. What an incredible statement. What an incredible statement. You know, oftentimes you hear, you see homeless on the the streets and um, people, they struggle to make eye contact. Uh, There is a real sense of otherness. And I don't say that, I'm certainly not, I I include myself in that group of people that struggles with this. So you are making not only contact with people, but you're developing relationships with those without roofs over their heads. And they're starting to accept you into their community. Mm -hmm. And that's an honor for you. It's an an honor that sort of uh, hits you on the back of the knee. I'll bet. And really folds you over. It's very humbling, and it's it over the years of my work with the homeless. Up, you know, it's been, now been almost twenty years. Over those years, walking across places like Boston Common and the busyness of a weekday, and hearing "Hey, Reverend Ron," you know, and seeing that it's a homeless person that is virtually ignored by the rest of the world, right? But sees you, and knows you, and trusts you enough, and knows that they're being seen, and knows that they're being seen. Is it's just an incredibly moving experience. Can't imagine. If you're just joining us, my name's Jim Derrick, your host, and I am with Ron Tibbetts, uh, who is a deacon in the Episcopal Church, currently serving at Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham, and we're talking about Ron's um, ministry, street ministry with the homeless, and you are about to engage. Uh, and become the executive director of, of an organization which has a rather large mission. The, yeah, I was working at Raytheon, mm-hmm. and there was a part of me that was still unsettled. Um, and a part of that goes to the thinking around defense contractors and defense and all of that. And I, I'm not a huge, I, I can't jump on the bandwagon when it comes to missiles that miss their mark and oh well, you know where they fall to the ground, that's just acceptable. And that was an awful lot of that conversation was not intentional. It's part of the reality of that world, but I wasn't content in that world. An opportunity came up to interview for, this has a very fancy title of the executive director of the Homeless Ministry Neighborhood Action Incorporated in Boston. And I say to people, I, I interviewed for the job, And after the first interview, I was invited to come to a Monday night dinner where 125 to 150 homeless people would gather in the basement of a church and have a dinner served to them by folks from mostly suburban parishes that brought in the food, prepared the food, served the food, and just made for this community. So I went in the first night, and I was assigned the position of greeter. Imagine a stairway to a basement, there are approximately 100 to 150 people lined up on the street, which happens to be on Beacon Hill in Boston. Sure. So there's sort right of right in the shadow of the state house. Right in the shadow of the state house. There's a paradox there already. There sure is. And my goal is to extend my hand and greet people who are living homeless. Among them are the severely intoxicated folks who are moderately, uh, moderately or severely struggling with mental illness, um, addicts criminals, the, the sort of what everybody in society moves away from. And my job is to greet them. It went okay. 
And, I, and I'll tell you, at the end of the night, a few of the people that I greeted, I introduced myself to on the way out. They said, uh, see you later, Ron. Nice to meet you. Again, knowing my name and being welcomed into their crisis started to wear on me, started to, you know, it, it turned my heart around. It so so thinking, describe that a little bit. What do you mean by wear? It, it's one of those places where you hope that an experience is a Brillo experience, mm -hmm. that when you rub it up against you, it wears away some of the deadness of your spirit, like the dead skin of your body. And I could feel that sort of dead dead skin of my spirit being taken away by their welcome. So, so you're, become, you're awakening. Absolutely. You're awakening Absolutely. a fire and a passion in you. And uh, based on the work that you did for the better part of the next 15 years, that was certainly a passion and an awakening. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so you start out, I, I can only imagine, um, we're talking about the most arguably, and maybe inarguably, the most stigmatized group of people you can possibly imagine in our society. Uh, the people that we refer to as bums. Yeah. The old days hobos. Yeah. Outcasts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and e easily they fit into that, that sort of identity box. Mm -hmm. They're bums, they're hobos. You can throw them all in that box and assume that they're all the same. But they are as unique and individual and blessed and, ho and, and gloriously created as are any in this world. And I had the privilege of over the next 18 years, 17 years, get to know that about many, many of them and to hear their life stories. Yeah. Before we went on the air, Ron shared with me that over the course, and I don't want to blow the, the whole story here, but this, this number just blows me away. With a staff of three people, including Ron, this ministry served over 45,000 homeless people per year in that small parish basement. That's correct. That number blows me away. I think you said it was 0.73 cents per person that you served was the expenses of Neighborhood Action, Inc., if you broke it out. The way, yeah, the way we qualify that was, we, of course, we took our budget, which was ridiculously low, hmm. and we counted every time someone came through the door, they were counted as a pair of feet. That, that's how we just talked about the, these people's presence. So I looked at the number of pairs of feet that came feet that came through the door in a year and divided it by our budget and came up with it's 73 and a half, almost 74 cents per point of service. You show me a, a social service agency or any other agency for that matter that operates with that efficiency and I'll, I don't think they exist like I, other than volunt straight volunteer organizations. That's absolutely incredible. The, the blessing of that is in that word, Jim, volunteer. Volunteer. You have we, were supported by hundreds of uh, volunteers. Uh, there were 18 parishes supported yeah. meals across the year. Mm -hmm. Suburban parishes and urban parishes did all kinds of in-gatherings and, and commitments to us. We had a great network of um, stores and merchandise that was donated to us through mm -hmm. stores, mm -hmm. through, through uh, retail and wholesale facilities. But it takes a lot of work to make that happen. You know, Ron, um, so the activity of, of, the, of, the, of this uh, neighborhood action is to both feed, uh, and that would be feed with meals, uh, and it also was to feed the soul with fellowship. Yes. Uh, can you yes. describe a little bit about how that worked? So you mentioned you opened first thing in the morning. Monday, it became our practice. Um, the food service manager and I both live in this area, and we carpool. 
come in on Monday mornings. We'd get we'd arrive at about six thirty in the morning. Now the church, Saint, the Church of Saint John the Evangelist, is on the cusp of Beacon Hill. It's on be on Bowden Street on the edge of Beacon Hill. There is a very convenient sort of urban structure to it where there's a bit of a walkway to the to one of the doors and beside that walkway is a stairway down into an exterior vestibule that's a great hiding place if you're homeless it's it's dark and mysterious so we would come in at 6 six thirty on a monday morning and ho- up to 13 or 14 homeless folk would be laying in that vestibule huddled together trying to stay warm for the night and just this was their place of survival. They felt safe there. David and I both thought that there's just a terrible injustice in that. Here we are opening the door, going inside, and these folks are still outside. So we started inviting them in. It happened quite accidental. We would invite those folks in, welcome them, yep. and know you're tired. There's a corner over there. If you want to grab your blankets and just go lay down near the heater and be warm for a while, that's fine. We're going to put coffee on what that grew into was a drop-in center that started at 6.30 in the morning, which is an hour, about an hour before the homeless shelters in Boston ask you to leave. And we started having more and more people come. Initially, I wasn't sure what the reason was, but then I began to understand that if you're living homeless and you have no money and the shelter wants you out at 7 o'clock, 7.30, you can't go sit at Dunkin' Donuts until the sun comes up and warm up. There are a lot of places you can't go, so you have to make a choice. And what is your first choice of the day? If we can offer on Monday morning your first choice, a place of safety, a cup of coffee, some pastry, some time off the street, we're offering someone a chance to alter the course of their day or at least po- at least postpone a part of what may, might be a destructive choice for their so day. So a choice to, to drink alcohol or, or take drugs or whatever their particular means of coping well the truth is on a normal day someone who is uh, homeless is going to have their regular meeting place where they meet with their regular buddies and at 6 37 o'clock in the morning is where they begin to make their choices for the day for people in the in the throes of addiction and loneliness and mental illness any choice is a choice that takes away the boredom of the day yeah If you're just tuning in, I want to remind you that we're speaking with the Reverend Ron Tibbetts, who is a deacon at Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham. For 17 years, Ron ministered to the homeless as the executive director of Neighborhood Action Incorporated in Boston. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You mentioned that you even had uh, cribbage was a a regular part of that morning ritual. The, The funny thing about cribbage is that it's a, they call it the prison game. Most of the fellows who are really gifted at cribbage learn to play in prison. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. So we started playing cribbage. We started opening, bought some cribbage boards, and a lot of folks would play cribbage on Monday mornings. We had a TV donated. We started to bring in videos, and folks would be watching movies on Monday morning. Other folks were playing different card games. Some folks slept. Some folks just sat around and talked. Some folks read. The whole morning was just about laying back, relaxing, making your own choice for your own comfort. Sure. But cribbage became, well, we ended up having um, what we call them international cribbage tournaments. <laughs> they, and and the number of uh, folks who live on, I love this word, live on the margins, another politically correct term sure. that allows us not to say homeless. Right. It, it takes away all the guilt right. to live on the margins. Yeah. 
those folks love to play cribbage and we would have six tables going of cribbage at the same time and just unbelievable from team cribbage to individual competitions and and so you, you are literally creating a community with this fellowship with this activity surrounded by cribbage with the activity of getting pastry and getting um getting uh, coffee and 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 knowing that there's a warm spot to be I'll meet you there tomorrow type of thing and you're getting to know these people intimately absolutely mm. can you I, talk to us a little bit about that because you're not just standing behind a wall and oh, serving, oh no. serving meals underneath a, from behind a curtain. You are in amongst the community playing cribbage with them, getting to know them. Oh, yeah. The, the story of cribbage is that two homeless guys began to teach me how to play cribbage. And as we started to have games every Monday morning, I played. I sat and I would play with this group. Usually around the table I was playing at, there would be a crowd of people watching. And most of the time, they were watching for an opportunity to say to me, no, 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 don't do that. What's wrong with you? Or laugh at me and give me a hard time. I allowed myself to be vulnerable to their humor. Sure. And we teased each other back and forth. And out of that, friendship develops. I, would, I wouldn't say today that I served a community. I would say today that I became friends with people in a community and we served each other. Okay. So to me, that's the crux right there is that. Um, what I heard you just say is that that you didn't serve the community, that you became part of and, and an integral part of that community, and that relationship was a two-way street, more than a two-way street. Were there times that you felt, you mentioned being humbled. Um, I imagine there were times that you felt like the luckiest guy on earth to have this privilege. I, I have to tell you a story, and... I, I hope that it takes your breath away to some extent. One of my grandchildren's friends in the Rentham school system as a young teenager was diagnosed with a very severe form of cancer. My grandchild told us about this girl and about her plight and the plight of her family and that her journey was going to be really hard if she was going to sustain and persevere and overcome this disease. I believe, and I did this across all of the years of being at Neighborhood Action and all of my years of serving and being in that community, at every dinner, we opened up our dinner with announcements, where the needle exchange van might be, where a service is gonna be, where some, we do announcements for the, for the community, for the community gathered, for the marginalized gathered for dinner. And every week, I would ask if there were anybody that had any need for prayer. And 150 homeless men and women, some, someone would raise a hand and say, I'm going in for this and that, and we would offer prayer. We would offer prayer that expressed our gratitude for the volunteer community, for the safety of that place, for the community, and for all of those things. So I took a chance, and, and I, doing the announcements before dinner, I think it was a Thursday night dinner, I mentioned that this girl who one of my grandchildren knew was facing a terrible experience. And I hope that you all will carry her in your hearts. And we prayed for this, this young girl who lived in Rentham and still lives in Rentham. Meals going on. Everybody's really busy. One of my homeless guys, my homeless guys, one of the homeless guys takes me aside and said to me, do you have a big mayonnaise jar? And I said, 
yeah, why? He said, is it clean? And I said, yeah, we, let me have it. I give him the big, I don't know how many quart mayonnaise jar. He stands up and he goes, don't fool me, anybody. You all know you have a few pennies in your pocket or a buck or whatever. Put it in this jar so that we can raise enough money to buy some fun things for this girl. These people have nothing, My right? gosh. He takes a 20 out of his pocket and puts it in. So we started this campaign. I have to tell you, it was unbelievable. The fellows that panhandle, they call it stemming. Sure. During the day when we weren't doing a program, I'd get knocks on the door and the doorbells would ring and they'd come with a handful of pennies and say, I got to put these in the jar. Dimes, nickels, dollars. Over the course of four weeks, we raised in excess of, now remember, this is money from a community of people who basically have nothing. We raised over $350. My goodness. I went shopping with homeless guys to pick out stuff for this young lady sure and brought all of what we bought back to to a dinner and showed everybody what they bought and people were cheering they were they were high-fiving people they had become valuable in mainstream in the mainstream world they had a value and that proclaimed to them brought the gifts to this young girl what a devastatingly emotional experience i you know i'm trying to imagine ron you it did take my breath away I'm trying to imagine uh, the the family's knowledge of of where that came, the uh, emotion that um, that the people that you serve must have felt, and the and the great gratitude they felt in being able to finally give a gift. Um, I just it's almost too much to understand to get my mind around. I'm going to tell you it sort of humorously how great the passion was for these folks was a year when the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Right. The time for the big celebration, the parade and all of that had come upon Boston. Where our mission was right around the corner from City Hall. Set up on the streets are all of these credit card companies and banks and everything else that are giving you free New England Patriots blankets if you just sign up for a credit card. That day, I had 31 blankets from homeless people who signed up for credit cards using fake addresses, but they wanted this girl to have a Patriots blanket. That is it's awesome. Be, it, it's, it's the depth to which they care. You can't, you, know? you can't, as they as they say, you can't make this up. No, this is one of no. those things, one of those times, those moments of grace that, um, what a privilege to be among those people. Did, what I they, say those people, I, I, among these people, this community. What they taught me, what they, what they taught me. It was just, that, that was overwhelmingly hysterical. One after another, <laughs> knocking on the door. I got a blanket. I got a blanket. And what did you use for an address? Yeah, the only guy I feel sorry for is the poor Citibank credit card guy who thinks he's having a banner year. He's having, this is great. I signed up 93 people for credit card. <laughs> 31 of them don't live anywhere. Hey, boss, we're out of blankets. Hey, great going, kid. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. We're putting you under contract for another year. Yeah, I, he may now be in a soup kitchen somewhere. Yeah. You know, but... Yeah. So, is there a way to summarize what Neighborhood Action did for you and how it informed you? I mean, I can't imagine with, with the amount of experience you've had in there how you would possibly summarize it, but I'm asking you to. Boy, that's really a very difficult question. I'll because bet. you could answer that on a variety of levels. Sure. I, it has me standing firm on the belief that people joining together to do the work, whatever the work might be, 
can get it done uh, as a, as witnessed by the volunteer community that supported neighborhood action over all of those years uh, the university students that grew and understood uh, the purpose and reason for organizations like neighborhood action by the homeless folks who when asked if they could help wanted to help and that's not only the situation with the young lady with leukemia, but in helping us set up tables and taking the trash out. They wanted nothing more than to be helpful. Taught, it taught me that if we ask other human beings to help, it's a part of our nature, for the most part, to say yes. And to be a part of a community that does whatever the task that is mm. set before us mm. and to get it done. So not being afraid to ask for help is a very humbling thing in some cases. It, it can be ego crushing, um, but it can also be, it, it, it's incredibly rich. Um, my faith in the human community mm. is strong. Mm. And, and I believe mm. that, that amazing things are, there are amazing things yet to come mm. for us as human beings. So mm. we have to not surrender our hope. If you're just tuning in, I want to remind you that we're speaking with the Reverend Ron Tibbetts, who is a deacon at Trinity Episcopal Church in Rentham. For 17 years, Ron ministered to the homeless as the executive director of Neighborhood Action Incorporated in Boston. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find us on our podcast at chaptersradio.com. What role does stigma play for the homeless population? I know it must, it must be a central theme as to why... It's difficult to be homeless today. I think with every, if you, let's just assume for a minute that, or say for a minute that homelessness is an illness. Yep. We can only comprehend so much of that illness. Illness. There's a part of that, that illness that is almost cellular that you and I cannot stand on, cannot understand on a cellular level. When you look at an individual who is homeless and you do the sort of deep, searching for that person, for why that person is, for what that person is, for sure. how they have come this way, come to this point, all along the way, down to that finite point, there are complications that are beyond our understanding. Combine them all, combine, uh, how does someone who is raised in a great family, has all the opportunity in the world, a Boston College graduate, a master's degree in English, become homeless. Mm. Then you look at some of the reasons and they're staggering. Mm. It also, it almost renders us powerless. Mm -hmm. So it's easier just to put a single stigma, a, sig a single cause. And that's what we do, right? Yeah, because it's, easy. it's, it's easier. You know how they are. Oh, yeah. it's one of them. Yep. That's a bum. That's right. Here they right. come again. Panhandlers. I've heard that they have a Mercedes parked around the corner. That's a great story. I hear that one all the time. That's a great story. Yeah. I know the truth of only one story where a fellow from Newton was finally audited by the IRS and they discovered that he, his career, his vocation was a panhandler. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he he had, he owed taxes and his mortgage was late and everything. So he wasn't making a fortune at it. What's the estimated population of the homeless in Boston? Would you guess right now? Massachusetts, it, it, Massachusetts. Or Massachusetts, yeah. Um, I understand that they, every year, what they have what they call first night. Yeah. And we go out and they try to do a count of the number of people who are homeless. 
in the city, it's somewhere around 8,000 mm. that are permanent, sort of permanent, transitionally homeless in the city. But across the state, I think it's somewhere, and I'm probably wrong on this, but the last number I recollect is somewhere around 18 to 22,000. That's staggering. That are homeless, yeah. Staggering. That doesn't count the well-concealed. The well-concealed, mm-hmm. well yeah. sure, those that can't be counted. People, a lot. The of, marginal of the marginalized. Or, or the... Or the um, smarter mm. of the marginalized i can stay invisible mm. and therefore i don't become a victim of the stereotype mm. um, so so those stories that you hear anecdotally um i would like to uh, use you as exhibit a of dispelling that myth that there's a mercedes or a bmw parked around the corner and somebody is merely panhandling uh to fund their next car payment and their their um, direct tv bill I can say with relative certainty that Mercedes is not the luxury car of choice among the homeless. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do people become involved, Ron? How does how does a, a Jim Derrick or a Johnny Smith who's walking around listening today, what can we do? I think the first thing you have to do is we, those folk, those of us who are suburban folks, are are comforted to believe that homelessness is a very urban issue. If you have a concern about homelessness, find out about how many people are homeless in your own community. I've, I've, I've been to some of the wealthiest towns in this, in this state, and I've talked to people in civic groups and in faith-based communities and asked them where the homeless in their town are, and they are adamant about there's no homeless here. I ask the town public health people and they'll say oh yeah there's a little community that comes in and lives in this little section of woods out in here for a certain amount of time and then there are the they're the transitional folks living in their cars who come through for the wednesday food pantry and then there are so denial is the first thing you have to take out of your own language and 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 assume that what that homelessness that addiction that whatever your passion, whatever strikes you as a place that you need to serve or want to serve and no more, find out as much as you can about it and you can serve in your own community. You don't have to go very far. So get moving. Get, just get moving. Just you get have, moving. You have to. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Um, Ron, we have about two minutes left, and I'm sorry that we're – but it's just such compelling, compelling and, and fascinating and touching calling that you've had over your life. But most recently – You've been involved with uh, another program, which is a ministry to folks here sub- in, a, in suburban, right, right in our area, and it, and it is called One Family. That's correct. And uh, can you talk to us a little bit about, about what fa- One Family does? What One Family does is it's actually it's born out of a small parish in Attleboro, All Saints Episcopal Church. It, it was birthed there. Uh, in the in the reality that the small this small faith community community could really do little in their community because of the available resources so the need to or the calling to do something in the community meant that they were going to have to reach way out to find people to collaborate with did so talked to several other parishes parishes got involved and got interested and what has come out of that is that once a month in the basement again in the basement of a church um, there is a gathering, a Saturday morning gathering, and it is a invitation to low-income families to come into the church. 
There's no obligation to pray, right. no obligation to become a pledging unit. So in it's the a church. low barrier to entry. It's a low, it's, it's if you can make it down the stairs, sure. you know, please come in. What they provide, um, these variety of faith communities now, is a very casual breakfast on a Saturday morning. Sit around, get comfortable, meet other folks, talk. Kids come and play. They have arts and crafts projects. Uh, it's just a time to be one family. It's as if it were a Thanksgiving dinner once a month, Saturday morning. We're all one family. What, what grew out of that was looking into the um, SNAP program, what used to be called the food stamp program, and realizing, see, I'd always worked with uh, homeless men and women. I had never done a lot of work with, with families. So I had not really paid much attention to food stamps and SNAP. So I looked into the SNAP program, and there was something staggeringly, shockingly missing there. It was things like toilet paper, paper towel, tissue, uh, just basic essentials for the sustaining of a household. None of those things are paid for by the food stamps or SNAP. So we started asking churches. We put together a list of things that we thought would be helpful for families, and we put together these gift bags, and there may be nine or ten items in them. Sometimes it's laundry detergent, dish soap. It varies depending on what we can collect. That's part of our gift, the one family organization gift, to those who come and, and uh, willingly spend their time with a faith community on Saturday morning. Do you, do you find communities developing within the community? In other words, do you have people returning on a regular basis and getting to know the parishioners and, and vice versa, kind of like the experience uh, that you had at, um, at, at your former position? The, the, um, I would say the, two dimensions to that. In the volunteer community, there are people that never miss their weekend right they do it five times a year and they are there faithfully they are energized they are delighted to be there the great part about that is the different faith communities have begun to know one another folks in foxborough may never have known people worshiping in rentham you, you've yeah. linked parishes together absolutely their absolutely. outreach programs are linked absolutely under yeah. this mission under one family uh, the vision of one family is it is that it will be a hub for a multitude of kind of ministries, all supported by each other and by that continually reaching out. But the other side of that, the even better side of that, is that you can go to one family on in, in any month and you will see the same people coming back. They now know your name. You know their children's name. You are, you have grown to be a part of their family. Sure. And that's the gift. What a gift. What a, a, a two-way gift. Um, Ron, I can't thank you enough, first of all, for your friendship um, you. and for your ministry and for coming in today. Um, I would love to encourage people, if it's all right with you, to contact the Reverend Ronald Tibbetts at Trinity Episcopal Church. Absolutely. Um, don't hesitate to uh, visit Ron. He is um, a tremendous man with a great mission who has taken his ministry as a servant ministry to the streets. Um, and we're all better off for it. So, Ron, I want to honor you today by playing um, one of my favorite musician songs, which is really about the fact that we are all together in this together. The name of this song is Land of Hopes and Dreams by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> thanks again, Ron. Uh, thank you, Jim. And thanks again to everybody for tuning in to Chapters. We'll see you next week.